I'm so glad that each of you are here for week one of our brand new series, and there's a lot that we're going to learn together about God during these four weeks. Obviously, we're calling the series, as you can see by the graphic on the screen, Meet God, and what we are going to do in this series is we're going to dive into the scriptures to see what God has to say about, and I guess we could say it this way, to see what God has to say about himself. Now, in anything in life, it's always uh, helpful if you can go back as close as possible to the original source. And you all have probably at some point uh, played a little game where you take something and you say it and it's repeated and it goes from that person to the next person around the circle to the next person, the next, the next. And by the time it gets back around to you, so many times it's been distorted from what you initially spoke that went around. And so in anything, in any kind of uh, document or any kind of thing, any kind of archive uh, that a person needs to go back. If you can get as close back to the original source, then that is just a, a clear advantage. And so we want to go back to the original source, and we're not using people's perceptions or ideas or misconceptions or opinions. We're going to go and see what God, again, the only way to say it is what does God have to tell us about himself? Over a decade ago, I read a particular book, and in that book are these two paragraphs and I have them here, and I want to read them to you as we begin this morning. This particular author writes this, I suspect that the God I know is the God you're looking for. He's not the God of your nightmares. He's not the God who eagerly waits for you to fail so that he can carry out his sentence of wrath with unbounded glee. On the contrary, he's a God who wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. He's a God who has orchestrated every event of your life to give you the best chance to get to know him so that you can experience the full measure of his love. So together, and I'm so glad you're here, and I just want to encourage you, next week is so important. I want you to come back for that. In fact, I hope that you'll be here for all four because we're going to discover together who God really is. What is it about his nature that you and I need to know? What is it about the character of God that you and I, what about his heart? I mean, when you really identify, when you really search the scriptures to see the heart of God, what does the scriptures reveal to us about who God is? And we're going to meet God in this series together. And we're actually going to launch this series with an unusual event, a very unusual event that takes place at an unusual time in the history of the nation Israel. Our setting we're going back to the Old Testament, and when I get into the story, you're going to be like, okay, where are we going with this? And you're, this unusual event happened a long time ago. What does it have to do with meet God? And, and you hang in here with me. I promise we'll tie it all together. But we're going back into the Old Testament. Some people would refer to it as the, the Jewish scriptures of the Old Covenant. And we're going to go about 11 books in, and we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. And in the center of this event, there is a prophet who, by the way, is a rather famous prophet in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Elijah. So they, that even if you didn't necessarily grow up in church, or you've not been in church in a long time, or you went when you were small and just sort of disconnected from church over time, you, you may remember hearing some stories about Elijah. Or, or maybe you've got somebody that you know that they have a child that's named Elijah. And you're like, where did your child? Oh, oh yeah, the person in the Bible. But uh, the main character of this story is a prophet that God himself has nudged and appointed for a very particular task, and his name, again, is Elijah. 
And to say, is really important, to say that Elijah is perplexed, to say that he is, to say that he is disappointed, to say that he is disturbed. Uh, in fact, I think it would be accurate to say that his RPMs are registering very, very high to say any of those things would be a huge understatement uh, when we come to 1 Kings chapter 18. And perhaps you're wondering why. Well, why is he so agitated? Why is he, why is he so frustrated? What is going on that Elijah is so challenged in that regard? Why is it? You may be wondering. And, and I'll tell you why. It is because the Israelites, the Israelites who are God's chosen and blessed people have turned their backs on God. I mean, this is, this is what's going on among the Israelites, the people of God. They have turned their backs. Again, they're God's chosen people. They're God's blessed people. And now they're turning their backs on God, this faithful, loving, gracious, promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And it's happened in a prevailing way throughout all of Israel where they've turned their backs on God. It's happened among the king, the national leader, the queen, and, and many. In fact, the vast majority of the people living in God's nation, really, Israel, the Israelites, God's covenant people, they've turned their backs on God. They have forsaken him, the one and only true God, and have chosen instead to worship a pagan God by the name of Baal. Bell. Now, I need to do this because when I talk, some of you can tell by my accent that I'm not from the Northeast. How many of you know that already? I'm not from or the Northwest or even the Midwest. How many of you, uh, you suspect that I was born and raised that I was born and raised in the South just based on how I talk. How many of you suspect that that is true? And that, that is true. And so when I say this pagan god, Baal, it may sound to you like Bell, like B-E-L-L. -L. And some of you are saying, is he saying Bell or, or Bell? And then you start, if you don't know, you're like Bell, B-E-L-L. -L, and is, is that like where Taco Bell got its, uh, you know, and you just, so uh, for clarification's sake, I'm saying, or trying to say, maybe that's a better way to say it. I'm trying to say Baal, B-A-A-L. Now, people in that day believed that Baal, this false pagan god, possessed powers over weather conditions. Now, I told you this is a very unusual event that's about to unfold. We're going to talk about it in the scriptures, uh, but it's a very unusual time. Because at this particular time, and it really comes into play when I mentioned to you that it was believed that this pagan god Baal had uh, powers over weather conditions, it, because at this time that we're in, 1 Kings 18, that we're about to look at, uh, Israel is in the middle of a multi-year drought, and it has created all kinds of problems and abnormalities. They desperately need rain, and they're not getting rain. And so many of the people, the king, queen, and many of the people, as I've mentioned to you, have turned their back on the loving, caring, guiding, covenant-keeping God, promise-keeping God, and now they're going after Baal. They're, they're now making Baal their God. They're going to worship and serve Baal, not the one true God. And uh, you, you know, it's sad when you really think about it because there were so many things linked to Baal worship. 
Any of you that have ever studied this, uh, the ancient worship of, of Baal, you know this. Again, he's a pagan god. He doesn't even exist. But associated with uh, Baal worship was things like uh, this. You'll, we'll see an example in 1 Kings 18 in just a moment. Uh, self-mutilation was a part of that. Just serve, part of serving and worshiping this god. Temple prostitution was prevailing. But I think the sickest, most tragic part of Baal worship is that many people in their worship and devotion to Baal would be brought to a point where they would offer, if you can imagine, I can't even, I can't even imagine this, but it's accurate, his history bears it out, that many people who worship Baal as their, their God, their deity, they would offer their own sons and daughters as a sacrifice. They would have their own sons and daughters kill their little boys and girls because they felt that in some way this would appease Baal. And so maybe it's now making a little bit more sense to you why Elijah's like fired up, why his RPMs are off the scales, why he is agitated, frustrated, disappointed because they have turned their backs on the one true God to go after Baal. So the prophet has seen enough. Elijah has heard enough and he is so provoked by it that he plans and organizes. Listen to this now. We're about to see it. A winner-take-all showdown between God, who they should have been serving, and Baal, who they were worshiping instead. Now, before I read the very first verse of what's going to be several verses, I want you to know that this is a really, really, really big deal. I, I want you to think, those of you that follow sports, I want you to think uh, Super Bowl, World Series, Stanley Cup, Take all of those combined, and this is a major, major national deal that is about to play out, and we're going to read about it starting right now, 1 Kings 18, and I want you to look at verse 21. Elijah went before the people because they've all gathered. This is a huge, massive gathering. Elijah went before all the people, and he said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? Look at this. It's really important. If the Lord is God, the one true God, Israel's God, often referred to in ancient Israel as Yahweh, Jehovah, if the Lord is God, follow him. If he's really God, then you follow him. But if Baal is God, now Elijah knows who he believes the real God is, but if Baal is God, follow him. Now look at this next phrase, very interesting. He's saying all this, all this is playing out in their nation, and it said, but the people, the people just sort of look at him, just sort of a blank stare, and they, they say nothing. Elijah is essentially saying this, and I want you to capture this so you can understand the text. And as we move into this a little bit, I want you to try imagine it. That's the way that I love. I like to walk into the Bible stories, the events that happen that are recorded in Scripture, and I try to imagine the sights and the sounds and, and what's going on, the smell, what, what is occurring here. And it's like Elijah is going before all the people that have gathered this day. Again, it's a, it's a gargantuan gathering. And he says, before the sun goes down, essentially this is what he's saying, before the sun goes down, we're going to know who the true God is. If it's Baal, then hey, go worship Baal. Go, just go, take off, do it. If, it's, if Baal demonstrates, if he proves that he's God, then you go after Baal. But if the Lord proves today that he is God, then you need to stop turning your back on the God that has loved you throughout your history, the God that has guided you, protected you, and provided for you, and you need to turn your attention back to God. So it's like we're going to find out today's showdown. Let's get the contest started, and here are the ground rules. All right, so we walk into the scene. You have this rather famous prophet, a prophet of the Lord. 
His name is Elijah. We've already mentioned this. We've got him. He's basically flying solo. Then over here on the other side of the continuum is uh, the prophets of Baal. Anybody want to guess? Some of you have studied this in the scripture, so you already know. How many prophets of Baal have gathered on this occasion on this, uh, for this contest on top of this mountain? How many? There are 450 prophets of Baal. So there are two altars that are uh, constructed, one for Baal, one for God. There are two bulls that are going to be cut into pieces and sacrificed. There is a prayer that is going to be offered to Baal, and that's going to go first. You'll see it in a moment. And then there is a prayer that is going to be offered to God. Now, we just read verse 21. Now, I want you to skip down three verses, verse 24, the A part, the first part of verse 24. I want you to look at this with me. Then let the prophets of Baal, this is still Elijah, then let the prophets of Baal pray to their God. And I, Elijah says, will pray to the Lord. And the one who answers by, it's going to be visible. This is not going to be left up to uh, speculation. There is going to be visible evidence as what God, God or Bill is going to answer by fire. Uh, and the one who answers by fire, this is what Elijah says. Uh, can we all agree that the one that answers by fire, he is God? So it's like agreed. They shake on it. And Elijah says, all right, it's top of the inning. So you guys go first. You go first. You're up first. All right, prophets of Baal, 450 of them. They could probably rotate because there's so many of them. You're up first. You're batting first, so get going. And this is verse 26. Let's look at it. three verses right here. So they took, they being the prophets of Baal, they took the bull given to them and prepared it, cut it in pieces. That's what would, what would normally happen with a sacrifice. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Bell, answer us, they shouted. But there was, what are these two words? Say it with me. There was no response. No one answered. Bell is not responding. And they danced, they take it up a notch, and they danced around the altar they had made. Now, I love this next part because until you read it, and if you don't know about, a lot about Elijah, you don't realize that he is such a prolific trash talker. But he is, look at this, at noon, Elijah began to, what, taunt them, shout louder, he said, surely Baal is a god, perhaps your god is deep in thought, maybe he's just contemplating, meditating, he's not answering, maybe he's busy, maybe he's got a lot going on, maybe he's traveling, maybe Baal has gone on a journey and he's not responding to you, I like this, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened, your god must be taking a nap, wake him up, apparently he'll respond if you could just awaken him out of his slumber so they look at this still raising the nods so they shouted louder and slashed themselves we talked about that part of bell worship was often involving self-mutilation so they slashed themselves with swords and spears as look at this as was their custom until their blood flowed what does the text say they're going through all of these gyrations, trying to get there. Every time he taunts them, everything that is said, they take it up, take it up. They're, they're praying. Now they're dancing. Now they're slashing themselves with swords and spears. And there is nothing. There is no response. For several hours, the prophets of Baal gave it their best shot, but nothing. Not a flicker, not a spark, not a word, complete silence. Nada, nothing, zero. Baal is not talking. Man. And Elijah's like, oh, he's, I don't know if he said it out loud. He's like, I'm trying to tell you guys, tried to tell you guys. 
And uh, he's, he's not answering. He's not going to answer because Baal has no existence. Why would you forsake the one true God? There's nothing. There's not a flicker. There's not a spark. Nothing happens. Again, the God that answers by fire is going to demonstrate that he's the one true God. Now, I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I was walking, because I like to walk into the store and try and envision, and here's the prophets of Baal, here's their altar, here's Elijah and his altar, and you know, all of this is playing out. And when I start thinking about answering by fire, I, I'm not a big TV watcher. I'm not opposed to it. I've got a couple of TVs in the house, and I watch sports, you know, in season, but uh, I don't watch a lot of other TV except for Survivor. For some reason, I like Survivor, and they're just trying to, you know, sustain and compete and win, and maybe it's my competitive nature that makes me like it so much, but how many of you know that before they have fire, you have to earn, if you've ever watched the show, like uh, this little striking Rod Flynn or whatever it is, and it's always, they're trying to they're just trying to start. If you've ever seen them, they're just trying to trying to get it going. And if they have a little spark, they sort of gather the thing, blow on, try to get a little fire. And I'm thinking, man, that, that must be exceedingly difficult. I have a difficult time with a book of matches, much less just like just trying to get it going. And, and, but there's nothing, zero, not even a small little flicker. Bottom of the inning. Next up, Elijah. Now, can you imagine the enormous pressure that is on Elijah in this moment? There's Baal, and then there's God. There's Elijah flying solo, 450 prophets of Baal. There's this mass gathering of nationalists, the people of, uh, living in the country or, or the nation of Israel. Uh, king, queen are there. All of the people are there. Most all of the people are there. And there is this enormous pressure in this moment. Now, when I mention pressure, what do you think of when you think about pressure? When you say, oh, man, I was in the pressure cooker on this, and it may be something in regards to your family, or it may be something at work, or it may be hobby or recreation. As I was thinking about this story and trying to live in this story, I, I think about um, you know, I, I work hard, but I can't say that I've got enormous pressure and the unbelievable toxic stress going on, pressure of timelines, getting everything done. Um, but I don't, I can't say that I have like extreme pressure. And the only thing that I could really think of, and this is so, this is so benign and so simple. I hesitate to even mention it, but it just came to my mind. I, I, I love to play golf. I want to be clear on this. I am not a good golfer. You would think after playing golf, as long as I've been playing golf, I should be good by now, but I'm not. And uh, my day off is always Monday. And so generally, not every Monday, but a lot of Mondays, I like to go. And, and generally, all my golf friends work on Mondays. So generally, I go out by myself, which, uh, you know, I'm generally tweaking something or working on something or trying something. But I can tell you, like, when I'm coming up to a, to a hole and I, maybe I've hit a good shot into the green for you golfers, and I'm standing there and I've got what is a reasonable or makeable putt. I mean, this could be like for me, if I can make this putt, this is going to be a really good score on this hole. I mean, if I could make this putt, I'd really be able to sneak in a triple bogey. All right. I can tell a lot of you don't golf. So uh, I can make this putt. And I don't feel, you know, I, I really don't feel a lot of pressure because it's just me. If I miss it, no big deal. Now, when I'm playing with other people, I, I feel the pressure a little bit more because if I'm playing on a team, they expect me or want me to make a putt. I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm not a good golfer. I, I can say this. I, I'm not a good golfer, but my uncle is an atrocious golfer. 
I can remember a number of years ago, he was playing in a fundraising tournament for, for an organization, and he's horrible, horrible, horrible golfer, and they're actually set up in the T-Bots, first T-Bots, guys in a camera, and my uncle walks up, talk about intimidation, and he stands over the golf ball, and he rears back with a mighty swing, and he rips down to drive the ball, and he is so horrible, my uncle misses the whole ball. He follows through, and the ball is still on the tee, and my uncle, who's quite humorous, looked right into the camera and said, tough course. This is a tough course right here. <laughs> well, I'm not that bad, but when I have felt pressure like putting, I've, I'm not a good golfer, but I've played in a few little tournaments. Perhaps you've heard of the Masters and the U.S. Open and the British Open and Ryder Cup and, okay, maybe not. But when I played in a little tournament, it's a whole different deal when you're standing up and there's this pressure that you, can you imagine? I mean, that's just something so simple, so light, so uh, non-mattering that you think about the pressure that Elijah has in those moments. Place yourself in his shoes. The tension of this moment. What's at stake? I'll tell you what's at stake. God's existence and reputation and his power are all on the line. Elijah, as he stands up, because remember, um, the prophets of Baal, they've batted first, and, and now it's Elijah. And when he stands up, you know, the altar's there, and he's getting ready to go through the, the process of setting thing, uh, things up. He asks for everybody. Elijah, it's like he's standing there, and he asks for everybody to move in, move in, move in. Come on, come on. Move in as close as possible, and he's going to do a little prep work. And as he does a little prep work, Elijah, this is what he's going to do. He's going to throw in a a little narration while he's putting everything together. You read the story, and I hope you'll go back and read it later. He takes and he sets up 12 stones, pur purposely 12 stones. Why 12? Why would Elijah choose 12 stones? Because there were how many tribes in Israel? 12. It's like he's taking stone number one and he starts his narration. Hey, I want to just remind you of this God, this God that you've turned your back on and starts putting it into place. This has been a covenant-keeping God. This has been a God that has made promises to us throughout our history. And stone number two, and he's just sort of putting everything in place. And, and he's not only made promises, he's kept his promises. God has been faithful and, and he's proven himself. He's guided us. Don't you remember when he guided our ancestors in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? How many, and he's just stone and he's just narrating while he's doing the prep work. What about God? I can't believe. And again, he's, he's provoked by this. How can you turn your back on a God that when our people were slaves in Egypt, that God miraculously delivered them and led them to a land of promise? Have you forgotten that our God, the God that you have turned your back on to go after Baal, he's the God that provided the opening of the Red Sea so that our people go, could go through on dry ground. And when the Egyptians and Pharaoh, all the chariots and horses went in after them, how that the waters came back together and just annihilated all of them. And how that God provided for us manna in the wilderness between Egypt and the land of promise. And when our people tire, grew tired and grumbled and they wanted protein, God said, all right, I'll give you quail. And then, and then how that God provided when there were no, no water, sources of water that were clean to drink, bitter waters, how that God provided water, and he's just stone after stone, and he's just setting them. It's like, how can you turn your back on a God like that to go after Baal? I can't help but wonder how far Elijah takes his comments. Perhaps it went something like this. Are you serious? Do you ever say something like, really? Do you think he ever does, does that? Or, really? Have you ever said something like this to somebody? 
Have you lost your mind? Have you ever said that to somebody? How many of you know that when you really want to emphasize it and you want to take, take it up a notch, maybe you don't do this, but I do this. I, I add some descriptive terms to it. I not only say, have you lost your mind? I like to add this. Have you lost your ever loving mind? That takes it to a whole nother deal. Not only have you lost your, have you, you think Elijah, have you lost your ever loving mind? That you would turn your back on a God that has loved you and cared for you and guided you and provided for you. Now you're caught up in the worship and devotion to Baal who has never told you that he loves you because he can't, hey, by the way, speak. And he's never made a promise to you because he can't speak. And he's never been able to keep a promise. Really? Baal doesn't hear you. He doesn't answer. You've seen what these idiots have done for the last few hours. Danced around, cut themselves. And there's nothing, not a spark, not a flame, not a flicker. We're about to find out, he says who the real God actually is. And he, you think he whispered in those moments, I know God sent me, I know God has sent me, but you think he just sort of mumbled to himself or thought to himself, God, I really need you to come through right now or this. It's going to be really bad right here, God. But, but look at what happens. Look at this verse. He arranged, this is Elijah, the wood, cut the bull into pieces as often happened when a sacrifice was being made and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, to all the people that had gathered, look at this now, this is amazing to me. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And you're like, uh-oh, what's he up to now? Now, let me take you back. The guy that answers by what? It's got to prove that he's God. By what? By fire. So he's like going to make it exceedingly difficult for God. So he just has it down. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Hey, why don't you go ahead since you're in the habit of it? Do it a third time. He ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. It's like soaked, drenched. He's like, all right, listen. Oh, I, I'm going to prove to you that the God that you've turned your back on is the one true God. And we have soaked the sacrifice. Look at the next uh, few verses, next three, I believe. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O oh Lord, and then he called on three historic uh, figures in, in national Israel, Israel, the God of Abraham, father of the nations. Remember, he's like the father of Israel. Uh, father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I've done all this at your command, that you've told me to do this, God. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people, he probably added in, these people that have turned their back on you, have they lost their ever-loving mind, have turned their back on you so that they will know that you, Lord, oh, Lord, are God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Look at the next part. Immediately the fire, immediately, immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones. You know how much heat it takes to burn up stones? And the dust, it even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell. And this made sense. When you saw something like this happen, as it did on this day, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And God proved himself that day on the top of a mountain that he was the one true God. Now, before we wrap up this first talk, and again, I hope you're going to be here next week. you got to be here. I hope you'll be here. Uh, in fact, I hope you're here for all four weeks as we talk about meeting God. But before we wrap up this first talk about meeting God and move outdoors for a word of baptism, I want to give you three very brief things to consider, and then we'll pray. First of all, first of all, and it ties into this story, 
And I want you to be sure, every one of you, young, old, male, female, I want you to get this. Please hear me when I tell you, nobody loves you like God loves you. Nobody. Nobody could ever love you the way that God loves you. I operate with this mentality that believes that everybody wants to be loved. And you say, are you sure everybody? And, let me, and this is just sort of a personal notion that I feel. Uh, even the people who say, and I've ran into a few people, I don't care if I'm loved or not. You know what? For me, you can choose what you're going to. I don't really believe that. Often I interpret that as people that have maybe been hurt so many times that they're afraid to love and trust again. But I think in the fabric of everybody's core is a desire to be loved. Spouses want to be loved. And children want to be loved, and parents want to be loved, and friends want to be loved, and God's creation, which is you and me, we want to be loved. God's creation wants to be loved. John Orberg has written a great book, and in it he says the message of Jesus that would inspire the world is that there is a transcendent God, and that the character of this God is love, love, love. And even when you and I say, and it's carried over into the New Testament, John said it a lot, that God is love. You and I can't even begin to capture just how powerful and perfect and amazing the love of God is. Because we think at times in our life when it's like, I loved in a way, maybe you think this, I loved in a way that it didn't seem that I could love any more than I did. And I want to just say in all due respect, when you and I love that kind of way, it does not even begin to compare with the great love that God has because it is perfect in every way. God is love. And he loves you like nobody could ever love you. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. But I'm just telling you, friends, nobody can love you like God can. Not a boyfriend, not a girlfriend, not a fiance. Nobody, not a family member, not a friend. Nobody can love you the way that God loves you. You know, about the time that you think, and, uh, you know, I speak for all of us to say that we, we love our families, and then for those of you that are grandparents, and you hear me reference my grandkids quite often, and that takes it up to a whole nother level of, of love because you think, how, you know, as a, a family, a couple like, how can you love your kids any more than, how, how can you love anybody any more than you love your kids? And then you're like, oh, the grandkids. And I had a funny thing happen this week. Uh, Landry, she's the three-year-old. She's the middle one, and she is, she's, I'm just telling you, she's a mess. She is a total mess. And so this week, Kinley, who's five, was at uh, her softball there at the softball complex, and uh, Kinley's out there in the field because her daddy played sports his whole life, and he thinks all of his kids need to play sports. And she seems to be, during ball games more interested in dancing, picking flowers, and talking to her friends, but she still plays softball. So they're all at, and you know, there's a little park there, and, and and a little concession area. And so Nicole is keeping her eye on Landry, who's walking around with her little cousin about the same age. And they're walking around with a little box of wheat thins. What kind of kids walk around with wheat thins at a ball game? But that's what my grandbaby, she's walking around with wheat thins and she had sat him down. And so Nicole's keeping her eyes on her. She's in close proximity. And, and my little granddaughter walks up to an older guy, and not because you're an older guy, because you're a younger guy, but just my little granddaughter walks up to an older guy, and she's talking to him, and Nicole's sitting on the bleachers looking, you know, Landry's having this conversation while this older guy's trying to watch his grandchild play, and the gentleman gets up from the bleachers, walks over to Nicole, and says, hey, I'm, I'm happy to do this. It's no problem, no problem, no problem. I'm happy to do this, but I, I want to know, are there any kind of dietary restrictions for your daughter? And Nicole's like, 
perplexed. And he says, yeah. And she's like, what do you mean? And he says, well, uh, she just walked over to me. Can you believe my, grand, my granddaughter would th- do this? She walked up to this older looking gentleman and looked at, at him and said, I'm hungry. Will you buy me a popsicle and a popcorn? She does that. I'm hungry. She's not hungry. She's been walking around with wheat thins. The whole, has she lost her ever-loving mind? She's, and she walks up. I'm hungry. She's not hungry. Will you buy me a popsicle? You buy me some popcorn? She's not hungry. She's greedy. There is a difference. <laughs> and so I said to Brian, I said, well, what did Nicole do? Did she laugh? I said, no. She sort of upset her. I mean, her, you know, our baby's walking. I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry. Buy me a popsicle, some popcorns. And she said it was a little bit embarrassing, but then they laughed afterwards. And then I provided clarification for all of them. And they needed this. I said, there is a reason that Landry, although she didn't know him prior to the ball game, walked up to an older guy. Because in her mind, she is used to her grandpa in Illinois and her papa in Florida getting her whatever she wants whenever she wants it because they love her incredibly. And she just thought, oh, older, I'm hungry. Popcorn, popsicle, please give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And they said, wow, you may be on to something. Yeah, she just thought it was like going to you or Nicole's dad. Man, do we love those little girls, that little guy. But please hear me when I say this, friends. Nobody loves you like God does. If you do not know this God, I want you to meet him. And I hope that every last one of you would experience a relationship with this real God who loves you unconditionally and loves you in a way like you have never been loved or could never be loved. Secondly, I'll be a lot more uh, quick with this. Secondly, Jesus is our sacrificial offering. I told you I wanted to tie all this together. Jesus is our sacrificial offering. Elijah, two altars, an offering on each altar. For ancient Israel, wrongdoing and sin was such a serious affront and offense to God that a sacrifice always had to be made. And I know that that custom is like foreign to us, but that's what would happen. In that era, in that culture, a slain animal, they believe, would atone for or become the payment for sin. Years, years, years later, Jesus came. And when he was about 33 years of age, he became the sacrifice for our sin, wrongdoing, rebellion. Writers would say there's no longer a need for a sacrifice, not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb, because Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, became the sacrifice for us all. And it begs this massive question. Listen, please, please, you've got to hear this question. I'm just about dumb, but you cannot let go of this question easily. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus who loved you enough to die for you? And I know because I've heard it, people say, well, well, you know, I, I grew up and my family went to a church and there was a family in the church or, you know, this happened in the church and our family and we just left the church. We've never been back to the church. And I, I know I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what are you going to do with Jesus? Well, there was this person, they said they were a Christian, and then there was this business deal, and that didn't work out. And, you know, since that time, I haven't really cared a whole lot, haven't really bought in, validated Christianity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what are you going to do with a man that loved you enough to die for you? Well, you know, I remember that time, and, you know, I was going to church, and I started looking at how people were acting on Sunday and what they were doing on the weekends, and I came to the conclusion that it's all a bunch of hip hop. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not telling you that didn't happen. I'm just telling you that has nothing to do 
with what are you going to do with the man who loved you enough to die for you? What are you going to do with Jesus? That's what matters most. Thirdly, finally, because Jesus has already paid our sin debt. And here's some great news. Maybe you've been, uh, you know, on a string of hearing a lot of bad news lately. So I've got some great news for you this morning before we're done. Here's the good news. We can come to Jesus just as we are because Jesus has already become our sacrifice. The good news is that the sacrifice that needed to be made was already made by Jesus. And so you and I can meet God. We can come to Jesus with all of our hurts and all of our habits and all of our hangups. And you're saying, you, you mean I can come just the way I am? Yep, absolutely. All these hurts, all these, yep, bring them all. All these habits because everybody's got habits. I cannot bring my, yep, you bring them. What about my hangups? I've got this challenge. This is my past. This is what I did. Like we talked about last week, I feel guilt and shame and remorse and regret. Hey, bring it all to Jesus. Because Jesus has already paid the price so that you and I could come just as we are. See, the God that you may think that you know, because over time and through circumstances or other people's ideas or misconceptions or something that's happened to you in the course of your life, maybe you've reached the conclusion, you think in your mind that God is really harsh or angry or judgmental or distant, aloof, unapproachable. But that's not who God really is, and you're going to see this in these next few weeks, that he's not like that at all. Instead, he is loving and compassionate and patient and merciful and forgiving and welcoming. Jesus says to us all, you can come to me. Sacrifice that needed to be paid, I've already paid it. I know you want to be loved, and you've tried to be loved in so many different ways. Sometimes it's worked, and sometimes it hasn't. You think there's no, I, I love you so much that I take nails in my hands and my feet for you. I love you that much. And here's the good news. Jesus says, come to me just as you are. Habits, hurts, hangups, bring them all to me because I care for you, and I'll take them all upon myself. Would you bow your heads, everybody? Close your eyes. Please, nobody looking around. And please, even when you raise your hand, don't look up. How many of you just love to meet a God like the God that I've described? How many of you just, yeah, yeah, a lot of us, we want to meet that kind of God. Oh, man. Maybe you want to become reacquainted with that kind of God. Maybe your relationship with God has grown distant or or just stagnant. And you're just like, wow, I've got to get reconnected. Man, I've got to get reconnected with this kind of God. That's who God really is. How many of you, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, you just say, you know what? I've never really met God. I've never really invited Jesus into my life. Jeff, man, there's so much that I don't understand. And I have, you know, I feel like I take a step forward and learn this. And then I've got three other questions. All right, God's okay with that. That's okay. But you just need to meet God. You got to get started somewhere. And you get started by inviting God's son, Jesus, who loved you enough to die for you into your heart. Maybe right there where you're at, you just say, wow, I need to pray that prayer. That's you. Again, no, nobody looking around when you lift your hand. Don't even look up. But how many of you say, you know what? I need to meet God. I need to meet God. I want to receive Jesus, God's son, into my life today. If that's you, stick your hand straight up in the air for just a moment. Raise it up real high. Let me see it. Let me see it. Yep, 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 yep. can put it right down. And then I'm going to pray a prayer, and you just pray it in your heart and your mind. In fact, when I pray it, you can just say, yep, me too, God. Yeah, me too, God. Me too. I agree, God. Yeah, that's me. Just pray something like this in your heart or mind. God, I know. 
I know that you love me. I, I know that you are not a harsh, angry, judgmental, distant, aloof, unapproachable God. I believe you're a God that loves me. You've proven it by sending the best that you had, Jesus, to the cross for me. That's love. I know that you're patient with me. You're way more patient with me than people really are. You're merciful. You're forgiving. You welcome me with all of my baggage, all of my problems, all of my hangups. I need you. I want to meet you, God. Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I know a, a little compared to what I don't know. There's so much I don't know, but I want to get to know you. I want to walk with you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for receiving me. Jesus, now I receive you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Can we put our hands together and praise Jesus? All right. We're going to water baptism, and I want you to come. And I know what some of you are thinking. Hey, I've got lunch. Lunch can wait for 10 minutes. It really can. My hair, again, it's beautiful hair. It is. I love it. Great. You're close. Listen. I want you to come out. Why is that so important? Because we need to celebrate people going public about their commitment to Jesus. Now, here's the instructions. This is what you need to do. If you have children, you need to pick them up first. We have had your kids long enough. You need to pick up your kids, and there'll be some signs, and you'll be able to go. They'll show you where to go out through theater number seven. Now, if you don't have kids, the rest of you, I want you to come with me. What we're going to do, walk out of this theater, turn left, go all the way down to the end of the hall, go outside those doors, turn left, and go to the back of this building. And there's some chairs back there. There's room to stand. And just we're going to gather around. And here's what I want to ask you to do. Listen, every time somebody comes up out of the waters of baptism, I want you to applaud them. That's a big step that they're making in their life. All right, let's go celebrate. won't take us long. Gather out there, and let's just see what God will do. All right, love you, everybody. See you next Sunday.